think emotions were really crystallized in April, on the 9th of April, when the damn statue came down. There it goes. Seeing the statue fall down on the TV screens, it was a release, you know, this idea that Saddam's regime could actually come to an end. Mina Al-Arabi was living in exile in London when the U.S. invaded Iraq, her homeland, in 2003. Al-Arabi's father had been an Iraqi diplomat, but he defected from Saddam Hussein's regime and for the security of their relatives still living in Iraq, they never spoke with them by phone. The day that Saddam Hussein's statue was pulled down, Al-Arabi was in the car with her father and her cell phone rang. It had been 13 years since she'd heard her uncle's voice. She told me the story of that day as we sat at a university in northern Iraq earlier this year. I heard his voice. I said, Dad, pull over. So we pulled up. And I gave the phone to my dad, and my father started crying, so I got out of the car, because I wanted him to have that moment. So I remember that moment so clearly, because for us, it was that release, that we could finally reconnect with the country, with our family. Everything changed after that. So two decades later, how do you feel about that moment now? The biggest sense is how many lost opportunities there have been. It could have turned out so differently. How? I don't think the removal of Saddam Hussein would have necessarily led Iraq to a path of sectarian strife, of ISIS taking up for a moment a third of the country's territories, of the corruption that is embedded in all walks of life in the country now, of the militias that roam the streets, all of that. It didn't have to go that way. I think the biggest frustration looking back is that 20 years on, we should have been in a much, much better place. When the war itself started, I think it was such a mixed bag of emotions. So you're going through all of that, but then also for a moment thinking, hang on, can this be the change that Iraq needs? Two decades after the massive statue of Saddam was taken down by the US military, there isn't much nostalgia in the country for the former dictator. After all, he'd plunged his country into wars with two of his neighbors, Iran in the 1980s and Kuwait in 1990. Conservative estimates suggest that at least half a million people were killed during those wars. At home, Saddam's army also waged a genocidal campaign against the country's Kurdish minority and others. In the last week, Iraqis have attacked town after town in Kurdistan killing as many as 290,000 of his own people. The Kurdish people of Iraq have been fleeing from their mountain villages. Thousands of whom died because Saddam's men used poison gas and nerve agents against civilians. And yet, after Saddam was toppled by the US, the American occupation of Iraq turned into a fiasco that contributed to a civil war that tore the country apart killing hundreds of thousands of Iraqis. More than 4,500 U.S. soldiers also died. And the war gave al-Qaeda a new lease on life. The terrorist group had been greatly damaged by the global effort to defeat them after 9-11. But the U.S. invasion of Iraq stoked the flames of Osama bin Laden's warnings 
that the U.S. wanted to dominate the entire Islamic world. And soon, a new branch of the group sprang up. Known as Al-Qaeda in Iraq, the terrorist group conducted hundreds of suicide attacks against American and Iraqi targets in the country. Car bombs were detonated just minutes apart. The explosions clearly powerful enough not only to cause damage to the buildings themselves... Al-Qaeda in Iraq later morphed into ISIS, which seized vast amounts of Iraqi territory in 2014 and instituted a reign of terror. The Islamic extremists swept across northern Iraq two months ago, seizing Mosul, the country's second biggest city. And the effects of the U.S. invasion of Iraq reverberated globally in other unintended ways. For example, the Iraq war also set a precedent for other unprovoked wars of choice, like the one we see today in Ukraine. Appoint the man who started the Iraq war, George W. Bush, recently and quite inadvertently acknowledged. Thanks for being here. When he was making a speech about the Russian invasion of Ukraine. Russian elections are rigged. The result is an absence of checks and balances in Russia and the decision of one man to launch a wholly unjustified and brutal invasion of Iraq. I mean, of Ukraine. Iraq, anyway. Uh. That's quite an anyway. Anyway, the Iraq war also played out in unpredictable ways in American politics. Hillary Clinton's presidential ambitions were always hobbled by her vote in Congress in favor of the Iraq war. It is with conviction that I support this resolution as being in the best interests of our nation. An obscure state senator from Illinois became president in part because of his opposition to the Iraq war. I said I could not support a dumb war, a rash war. And a reality star business guy from New York City campaigned on a promise that he would get the U.S. out of its endless post-9-11 wars. The war in Iraq, we spent $2 trillion, thousands of lives. Obviously, it was a mistake. The entire case for war was built on American intelligence that was shoddy at best and fabricated at worst. That Saddam Hussein had an active weapons of mass destruction program and was in league with al-Qaeda. False claims that poisoned American politics for many years. Trust in the U.S. government declined from a high of 60% shortly after the 9-11 attacks, down to around 25% by 2007, when the Iraq war was at its height. But as the years have passed, the spotlight on Iraq has faded. That's too bad, because the fallout from this ill-advised, unjustified war, in addition to the devastating loss of human life, not only decimated the institutions necessary to rebuild Iraq, it also had another unintended consequence, strengthening the regional power of one of America's greatest sworn enemies, Iran. Iran's come out much more influential than it could have ever dreamed. I recently traveled to Iraq, a country still struggling to rebuild, a country still hosting 2,500 American troops. To find out how all this happened, what it means for the world, and whether or not Iraq is ever going to recover. A lot of people are now once again yearning for a strong man, especially young Iraqis who never lived under Saddam Hussein. And that is a really worrying sign 
I'm Peter Bergen. Welcome to In the Room. Just a quick note before we get into the story. I hope you'll go to audible.com slash news where you'll find my recommendations for other news, journalism, and nonfiction listening. That's audible.com slash news. Now, let's get back to the show. It's worth remembering what it was like for Iraqis before the U.S. invasion, under Saddam Hussein's regime. In Suleimania, a city in the Kurdistan region of Iraq, a tour guide showed me around the Amna Suraka Museum. It's a former prison that one journalist described as the world's most depressing museum. Here, Saddam's men tortured and executed thousands of Kurdish civilians. The location of the prison in the middle of the city, in a residential neighborhood, was not an accident. Saddam wanted everyone to know the fate of those who opposed him, or might even be thinking about it. The prison has been eerily well-preserved. Long concrete hallways and dark cells, as well as the instruments of torture used by Saddam's men. Bloody pliers to pull out nails, machines to apply electric shocks, and whips to beat prisoners. The exact number of Kurds killed by Saddam's men may never be known, but the museum paints a grim picture of the genocidal campaign waged against them. So we're walking down this very long corridor. It's covered with these shards of glass. Each of them represent 182,000 Kurds who were killed by Saddam. And on the ceiling, these are these are a bunch of very small like fairy lights. Each of them represents a village that was destroyed by Saddam, which is 4,500 villages. And this place goes on and on and on. It's a long hallway that shows you the extent of Saddam's really fantastically brutal campaign against the Kurds. Room number two used to be like put uh, children only. Children's prison. Yeah. Uh, these children who were like uh, younger than eight years. And there's a tiny little window. That's the only light they had. And writing on the wall, I was attained at home. I was only 15 years old. They changed my age to 18 so I could be executed. I'm about to be executed. I'm sorry, my mother and father will never meet again. Wow. This was a women's prison. Yeah. Pregnant women were brought here to be jailed and then they would have their kids in this yeah. prison. They tortured the mothers by giving away the child. Oh my God. So they were being separated oh and they never saw each other, each oh my other God. again. When Saddam fell, Iraqis like Mina al-Arabi were hopeful. Maybe this was the beginning of a better future. But it quickly became clear that the Americans and their allies didn't have much of a plan, nor did they understand the complex ethnic, religious, and political divisions in the country. Extreme sectarian violence overtook Iraq in the vacuum created by Saddam's removal from power. 
For the first time, many Americans learned the terms Sunni and Shia, a doctrinal division between Muslims that is almost as old as Islam itself. It began shortly after the death of the Prophet Muhammad. Saddam was a Sunni, and most Iraqis are Shia. Despite the fact that political power was mostly held by minority Sunnis during the Saddam era, the Sunni and the Shia coexisted relatively peacefully before the U.S. invasion. But the U.S. occupation brought elections to Iraq, which inverted the pyramid of power in the country. The Sunnis, who'd been on top in Saddam's Iraq, were now on the bottom and dominated by the majority Shia. Al-Qaeda in Iraq soon found a fertile recruiting source among disaffected Sunnis. In 2006, the bombing of a major Shia holy site, the Golden Mosque in Samarra, by Al-Qaeda in Iraq, greatly escalated tensions between the Shia and the Sunnis. To the Shia Muslims here and all over the world, this mosque was profoundly sacred. And now today, still sacred, it is a ruin. And Iraq was plunged into a full-blown civil war, during which around 100 civilians were being killed every day a conflict that lasted for two years before it began to tamp down. The desecration, a call to arms. Thomas Hobbes wrote Leviathan in 1651 at the end of the English Civil War. And he basically made the point that the only thing worse than a dictator is a civil war and anarchy. I mean, was the problem that the United States knocked out this dictator very efficiently and then just really didn't have a plan for what came next? That was a big part of the problem of not having a plan when the U.S. decided to become an occupying power and make certain decisions, like dismantle the military, dismantle state enterprises, start messing with different ministries, and yet not replace it with something else. To understand how the U.S. occupation of Iraq turned into such a debacle, I also spoke with Emma Skye. She's the director of Yale's International Leadership Center, and she was there on the ground shortly after the invasion. I asked Skye to reflect on the political philosopher Hobbes' observation that if you destroy a strong state, you are left only with anarchy, in which life is nasty, brutish, and short. When I arrived in Iraq and I was in Baghdad and went downtown and I was looking just at these beautiful buildings which had been completely looted and I just stood there looking. And an Iraqi man walked past me and he said, Alam Hobbesy. It's a Hobbesian world. And I looked at him (laughs) and I thought, who's this Iraqi talking about Hobbes? And it always stuck in my mind because I think up till then, I'd always been focused on human rights abuses of states. I'd had no imagination of what a world without a state was like. Skye had an unusual journey on her way to work in Iraq as a British government official. She studied Arabic at Oxford and then worked as an aid worker in the West Bank in Israel, helping Palestinians. In 2003, an email from the UK Foreign Office popped up in her inbox. It was asking for volunteers to go help the Coalition Provisional Authority, which was the transitional government set up in Iraq by the American and British governments. The Provisional Authority had a tall order to provide security, put the country on the path to democratic elections and rebuild the economy after the fall of Saddam. Skye, with her Arabic language skills, was a natural fit. So even though she opposed the Iraq war in the first place, she responded to the call. 
you know, as one of these people who was passionately against war, passionately against the invasion of Iraq in 2003. And when the UK government asked for volunteers to go out to Iraq, I volunteered. So that's how I ended up out there. I mean, I volunteered because I wanted to apologize to Iraqis for the war and help them rebuild their country. I didn't want the only foreigner for Iraqis to meet to be a soldier with a gun. Sky packed her bags and prepared to depart for Iraq, where she planned to spend three months helping to rebuild the post-Saddam country. But she still hadn't been briefed about what exactly she was going to do. They said everything would be clear on arrival. So I thought, I'll take them for their word. It's the British government. They must know what they're doing. So that's what I did. I followed these instructions, arrived in Basra, and nobody was expecting me. So then I got on a plane and I went up to Baghdad. And I knew that the headquarters of the coalition was Saddam's palace in downtown Baghdad. So I found a bus from the airport to downtown, to the green zone, walked into the palace and said, hello, Emma from England, come to volunteer. And there was a list there with my name on it. So I thought at least somebody somewhere knew that I was supposed to come. But after a week in Baghdad, they said, look, we've got enough people here, try the north. So I kept going and I got to Kirkuk. When I arrived in Kirkuk, I was told that I was the senior civilian in the province reporting to Ambassador Bremer in Baghdad. Kirkuk was a very, very complicated place that I knew very little about. It had about 1.5 million people. How old were you then? I was 35. So you're in charge of this enormous province in this foreign country at the age of 35? Yes. And in case you're wondering, I had never been, you know, mayor of a town in the UK or anything like that before. <laughs> Everybody was focused on the military operation to overthrow Saddam. There had been little focus on what came after. That's very much an understatement. There was virtually no planning for the day after Saddam fell. The US State Department's few plans were simply ignored by the US military which was essentially running the country. So that meant volunteers like Emma Skye could end up in charge of vast swaths of Iraq. During Skye's first week in Kirkuk, rockets were fired into her house. She miraculously wasn't hurt in the attack, but the house was unlivable, so she moved into a tent on the airfield of a nearby US military base. There was this brigade there, the 173rd Airborne Brigade, and they were running everything in the province. And I only had like two or three staff. And I spent my first weeks just taking notes on everything the US military was doing because they were running everything and then criticizing them. And the colonel, they had a very capable colonel. He said, look, instead of just all the time criticizing us, why don't you just come and work with us and help us do the right thing? So that's kind of what happened. I found myself really integrated within this brigade and helping them define what success was. Success wasn't US military running schools, hospitals, water, sanitation. Success was Iraqis running all of these things. But that wasn't going to be easy with the removal from power of Saddam Hussein. 30,000 members of his political party, the Ba'ath Party, were dismissed from their positions by the Americans running Iraq. Membership in the Ba'ath Party had been pretty much compulsory for anyone who wanted to get ahead in Saddam's Iraq. 
Now, suddenly, this pool of experienced people that had once run Iraq were mostly out on the street. So it meant that then we had schools without teachers, we had hospitals without doctors, and people who we were working with then started to see us as the enemy. You wrote a book about this called The Unraveling, about this entire period. Why the title, The Unraveling? Unraveling is an acknowledgement that everything we tried to do all came apart. So it's not a, a happy end, but hopefully it pays tribute to those who tried so hard to make Iraq a success. And in a way, it is an opportunity to remember the lives that were lost. A lot of the characters in the book are dead. But in the book, you live their stories, you see who they were and what they tried to be and achieve. Knowing all that you do, was getting rid of Saddam Hussein worth it? I think Iraqis have to answer that question. That's Simona Fulton. She's a journalist and filmmaker based in Baghdad, and she's one of the few members of the foreign media who's still intensively covering the story of today's Iraq. I have asked this question many Iraqis, and all of them, I think, will agree, perhaps, except, you know, of the people who used to be in, in the Ba'ath party and enjoyed pretty close ties to Saddam. I think all of, all of them would agree that Saddam was a brutal dictator who had to go. But at the same time, a lot of people are now once again yearning for a strong man, especially young Iraqis who never lived under Saddam Hussein. And that is a really worrying sign and really a, a sign how disillusioned people are with democracy 20 years after the invasion. What went right in the last two decades, do you think? Because we know, obviously, what went wrong. But what do you think went right? It's always, it's always a difficult question to answer. There is more freedom, but it's very fragile. So freedom of expression, for example, which you could argue was one of the main benefits of removing Saddam, is really under threat, especially right now. You see a systematic crackdown on freedom of speech with anybody who dares to criticize authorities facing imprisonment. That was one of the major gains of the last two decades, but even that is eroding at the moment. The other thing that has gone well, I suppose, is that Iraqis did manage, though with external support, to defeat ISIS. ISIS, a terrorist army of tens of thousands of fanatics who wanted to install a Sunni ultra-fundamentalist regime, stormed across Iraq in 2014, seizing large amounts of territory, including Mosul, the country's second largest city. These terrorists tortured and murdered their enemies in the most appalling ways. A terrorist group, ISIS, so determined to shock civilized people everywhere, has now resorted to a new method of murder. They have executed a Jordanian Air Force pilot by burning him alive. And With considerable help from the U.S., the Iraqi military fought back and by 2018 had largely destroyed ISIS forces on the ground in Iraq. In 2018, there was this pride that they managed to defeat this terrorist organization and that perhaps the country would really capitalize on this positive outcome to, to try to move forward, which unfortunately did not happen. You do see 
kind of like a you know a normal life in in Baghdad. People are going out. They're they're looking for new things in life. There are cafes opening where you have new spaces for artists, for students, for activists to hang out. Where you have a certain kind of popular culture and political discourse taking place. So those are kind of you know positive things that I guess I see in everyday life. But overall, you can hear how I'm really searching for things. And maybe, maybe you know, I'm being too pessimistic. But, but I mean, there are some positive things, I would say. Still, it's only been five years since ISIS was defeated, and just over a decade and a half since the Iraqi civil war was at its height. Even though there is no conflict as such, people also don't really feel safe because they know that every few years... Iraq descends into another cycle of violence. And so it, that really impacts your ability to, to plan for your future, to really you know, feel safe. There's only been one official American accounting of what really happened during the Iraq war, which is the U.S. Army's History of the War, published in 2019. Its surprising conclusion, quote, an emboldened and expansionist Iran appears to be the only victor of the war. This isn't some leftist critique of the war, but the considered judgment of a group of U.S. Army historians. So what does that mean in practice? Iran is deeply involved in Iraqi politics. Some of that is to be expected. After all, the Iraqi population is largely Shia, and so is the population of Iran, which is right next door. But it goes a lot further than that. More than a dozen of Iraq's political parties have ties to Iran, and many of those parties have their own private armies that are trained and funded by the Iranians. These pro-Iranian militiamen chanting death to America as they try to storm the Those Iran-backed private armies have regularly attacked American forces in Iraq and in neighboring Syria in recent years. And some of these Iranian-trained private armies have even become part of the Iraqi military. And Iran's large influence in Iraq has helped to turn Iran into the key regional power in the Middle East, propelling it closer to the level of countries traditionally more friendly to the US, like Saudi Arabia and Israel. Iran has become a dominant player in several Arab countries, from Yemen in the south, to Iraq, to neighboring Syria, and to Lebanon in the north a region that stretches some 1,500 miles across the Arab world. I wanted to know if Mina al-Arabi thought it was a reasonable conclusion that Iran was the real winner of the Iraq war. It's a tough question because it depends how you define winning. So Iran's come out much more influential and able to maneuver in Iraq than it could have ever dreamed. Is it the only winner? I'm not so sure. I do think you have people who suffered incredibly under Saddam who are not suffering in the same way again. And I don't think we should discount that too much. But the Iranians were handed Iraq on a silver platter. As they were opportunistic. Iran is Iraq's neighbor, so it's perfectly fair that they should have influence. The population is mostly Shia here. There are these major pilgrimage sites in Iraq where millions of Iranians come every year. I mean, the idea that Iran is influential in Iraq is to me, that maybe that's not a big deal. The question is, what kind of influence do they wield? And I can see you're kind of grimacing. I am grimacing, <laughs> because there's nothing natural about two sovereign states where one state can 
almost control and dominate vast sectors of the other state. The U.S. and Mexico have a very complicated relationship, but you can't say the U.S. can run vast parts of Mexico or determine how certain things come about. Is Iraq a failed or failing state? No, I don't think Iraq is a failed state. Iraq could possibly be named a failing state because of the levels of corruption on every aspect of life. And how does that work, the corruption? You go into a hospital, and if you don't have a contact or if you don't know somebody that you can pay off, you're going to end up in the worst possible situation. If you want a passport, you know, it could take you a year and a half to get a passport, or it could take you a couple of days, and it just depends who you're paying. So the problem is there's no system. It's everybody's making a buck where they can. But then there's the bigger elements. And those are, of course, the corruption that comes with the contracts that are signed. Nobody knows how actual tenders work for major government uh, procurement. You see people who suddenly become millionaires and nobody knows how they did. I mean, money being siphoned off left, right and center. Customs, borders, it's really on every level. And I don't think corruption is just about money. It's also administrative corruption, where it's nepotism and it's patronage networks and, you know, sometimes entire ministries get taken over by a particular political party and then they hire their cousins and sons and sisters and aunts to take in positions. You know, members of parliament get an allowance for bodyguards and then you meet the bodyguards and they're all literally cousins and sons of neighbors and whatever. And these are these massive patronage networks. And that erodes a state. So Iraq is a kleptocracy. Iran wields considerable power there. Democracy is eroding. Given that bleak picture, I wanted to know from Simona Fulton, Mina Al-Arabi, and Emma Skye, what gives them hope for the future of Iraq? They all agreed that protests by young Iraqis in 2019, protests that didn't get much coverage in the U.S., were hopeful signs of a new generation of Iraqis who are now demanding a truly accountable government. It's the young generation. In 2019, they had these demonstrations in Iraq. And you saw these young Iraqis come out onto the streets of Baghdad to demand a country. You know, their slogan was... (laughs) I want a homeland. They were very critical of the kleptocratic elites ruling the country. Some of them have slingshots, but most seem only to be carrying their country's flag. The protesters have been driven by a profound sense of hopelessness. The people on the streets are young, educated, and they're fed up of having a complete lack of any prospects. They understood the negative impact that Iran was having on the country. And they really, really wanted better. There were demands that they should be given opportunities to live lives, to have jobs. And to see the courage of these young people. The Iraqi security forces and militias killed 600 of them by throwing gas canisters to the head and bullets to the heart. But they still came out. And they made these makeshift hospitals. It was really, really inspiring. And so whenever I meet Iraqis, you never meet an Iraqi who's had a boring life. Every Iraqi, something has happened to them and how they have coped, how they have responded. Iraq has an extraordinary history. 
It's been for centuries upon centuries a multicultural place with all these different peoples. And to see people consciously trying to tap into that history of coexistence, that incredible art, music, books, that whole history and culture they have to draw on. So to see people really trying to tap into that to create a better future, things like that really give me hope. Those protests stirred the same feelings in Mina al-Arabi. They were led by a generation of people who know nothing about the regime 20 years ago, who, you know, were babies when the war happened or perhaps not even born. And they want a better life. They were calling for freedom. They were calling for no external interference, particularly from Iran. And they were calling for a homeland. The questioning of how things are set up in the country now will continue to increase because there's a generation who remembers Saddam's time and says, no matter what happens, this is better. But the next generation says, actually, this is unacceptable. We see how other countries in the region live. We see how you can actually make politics work to the advantage of the people. And so with time, the benchmark is no longer what did Saddam Hussein do in the 1980s, 1990s. The benchmark is what is this government doing and how can we vote it out or how can we change the system? Simona Fulton was more skeptical when it came to the country's future. Iraq is not on a trajectory right now where you can say, you know, the country is headed towards a brighter future. It is still dealing with the aftermath and the ripple effects of all of the conflicts past, and it's facing new challenges in the future that the government is ill-equipped to face. The business environment is extremely dysfunctional. So you have this kind of paralyzed system that is not allowing for real growth, that is not allowing for the potential that Iraq has. Because let's remember, Iraq is an extremely rich country. It has 40 million people who have huge potential. The fact that Iraq is so poorly governed is is preventing the majority of its population from realizing this potential. And therein lies the future instability, mass youth unemployment. On top of that, climate change. Climate change. It's a threat that is facing the world over. But in Iraq, one of the legacies of America's botched invasion is a corrupt government unwilling to do anything to really help prepare for a much hotter and even unsurvivable future. Fulton has been covering this issue extensively. Very little has been done. And while I think Iraqi farmers very much realize this is existential, I don't think the politicians have either realized it or they really do not care. Iraq is not a poor country, especially with current oil prices. It is making you know, a lot of income that it should be using to invest in water management infrastructure, that it should be using for climate adaptation. And unfortunately, that is not happening. Just in the few years that I've been here, there has been a wave of migration from rural areas to urban areas because farmers or cattle herders simply can't sustain their old way of life anymore. And that is something very worrying because in the cities, you already don't have enough jobs for the urban population. So it will just be another source of instability with potential protests, potential clashes over land, clashes over water. And we're seeing that on a small scale already happening. But still, there has been no meaningful action taken at all 
by Iraq's elites. What's summer like in Baghdad now? The city is becoming unlivable, and I have noticed this change just in the span of the five years that I've lived here, because you have, of course, the increase in temperatures and the drop in water levels. But what you also have in urban spaces like Baghdad is the gradual but systemic removal of green spaces. And that really impacts the temperature. It's creating this urban island effect during the summer where you have the heat reflecting off of the concrete and you, you don't have really gardens anymore or parks or anything like that where the greenery can absorb the heat. Emma Sky describes the heat this way. It's like somebody turning on a hairdryer, full heat, full blast in your face. It is so overwhelmingly hot. And for much of the time, there is no electricity, so there's no air conditioning. You can see Iraqis sleeping on their roofs trying to get a bit of wind. On top of climate change, there are still the lingering effects of all the conflicts that have engulfed Iraq. The country's bloody, quite recent past is on display in the museum I visited, which was once a torture and execution site. In one section, there's a memorial to the victims of ISIS, the terrorist group that controlled vast swaths of the country and that was only largely defeated within the past half decade. Oh, these are terrible pictures of ISIS executions. Uh, this is age restricted. It's not for anyone, especially child. So yes. they are not allowed to see this and yeah. be in this room. It's interesting that you have this memorial to ISIS because I thought the museum was just up for the Saddam era. Uh, they will dedicate in um, more rooms for different purposes. It's telling that a museum dedicated to the worst chapters in Iraq's recent history isn't just about Saddam's time. ISIS was a byproduct of the American era in Iraq. Many Iraqis remember all too well that when US troops were first pulled out of Iraq in 2011, a withdrawal negotiated by then Vice President Joe Biden, the country fell into chaos, and within three years, ISIS fighters were raising their distinctive black and white flags in cities across Iraq. To defeat ISIS, President Obama sent US troops back into Iraq in 2014, and today, US soldiers are still based in Iraq, largely to help keep ISIS in check. About 2,500 US troops remain in Iraq as part of the multinational coalition force in the fight against ISIS. Al-Arabi says that U.S. military commitment is important. Unfortunately, we've seen with the U.S. that when they're not present militarily, they very quickly disengage. And so it is important. And it's important for the Iraqi security forces who continue to learn from them and, and need to have that relationship because if they left, somebody else will fill that vacuum. In recent decades, the United States has stumbled badly when it's intervened in countries like Afghanistan and Iraq often knowing almost nothing about the local culture and politics before it toppled the government, and then having virtually no plan for the day after, and somehow seeming to believe that all its virtuous intentions would be enough to fix all the broken China, seeming to believe that all its rhetoric about democracy and nation-building would be enough to make it so. The United States believes its own slogan of being an indispensable nation. It is not, but it believes that slogan. The U.S. thinks that it has this moral conviction 
that people will just agree with it because it is democratic and idealistic. And frankly, people see the flaws in the United States. And so actually the symbolism and moral talk doesn't fly, and particularly not after what happened in Iraq and then, of course, the withdrawal from Afghanistan in 2021. The callous manner in which the Afghans were left to their fate ended any talk of trying to pretend to have a moral authority. So I think that the U.S. had a naivete and innocence and arrogance all rolled into one. It's a damning indictment, but it's a well-considered one, coming from an Iraqi who is one of the Middle East's leading journalists. And it's a lesson worth remembering the next time that American politicians predict that a military intervention abroad is going to be a cakewalk. If you want to know more about some of the stories and issues we discussed in this episode, we recommend The Unraveling by Emma Skye, The Occupation of Iraq, Winning the War, Losing the Peace by Ali Alawi, and The U.S. Army in the Iraq War by a team of U.S. military historians led by Colonel Joel Rayburn. In the Room with Peter Bergen is an Audible original, produced by Audible Studios and Fresh Produce Media. This episode was produced by Laura Tillman with help from Luke Cregan. Special thanks to our production team in Iraq, project manager Ramia Dilshad. Coordinators Les Salah, Havar Sabir, translator Makwan Bazan. Our executive producer is Alison Craiglow. Katie McMurrin is our technical director. Our staff also includes Alexandra Salomon, Eric German, Holly DeMuth, and Sandy Malera. Theme music is by Joel Picard. Our executive producers for Fresh Produce Media are Colin Moore, Jason Ross, and Joe Killian. Our head of development is Julian Ambler. Our head of production is Eleanor Bavietz. Eliza Lambert is our supervising producer. Maureen Trainer is our head of operations. Our production manager is Hermenio Ochoa. Our production coordinator is Henry Koch. And our delivery coordinator is Anna Paula Martinez. Head of Audible Studios, Zola Mashriki. Chief Content Officer, Rachel Giazza. Head of Content Acquisition and Development and Partnerships, Pat Shah. Special thanks to Marlon Calby, Alison Weber, and Vanessa Harris. Copyright 2023 by Audible Originals, LLC. Sound recording copyright 2023 by Audible Originals, LLC.